0: This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening
1: live. Good evening, everybody. It's Thursday, it's six o'clock, it's time for Cracker Jack. Or not, as the case may be. Good evening, it's Henry Saunson again. Lovely to welcome you back to another Twilight Show here on a Thursday. Uh, lots to talk about tonight, and uh, we're going to start by focusing on what's gone on this week. Um, in my life and yours
0: this is teachers talk radio and you are listening live tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation download the podbean app and search teachers talk radio follow the hashtag tt tune in talk it out with teachers talk radio
1: okay good evening everybody apologies for the dodgy crackerjack reference earlier very niche um, so going to start with an opening quote uh one i was introduced to this week actually by somebody who was interested in getting into teacher training themselves they said uh it's a robert john Meehan uh quote i don't know the chat but we'll be uh be looking more into his words he tells us the most valuable resource that all educators have is each other without collaboration our growth is limited to our own perspectives so uh, something to think about there. Um, collaboration is one of those things that I'm particularly interested in at the moment, um, especially around how effectively and efficiently it is used and how often sometimes the word itself is a mask for inefficiency. But more of that another time. So uh, I've very kindly been welcomed back into, the, uh, well, into my own spare bedroom studio uh, to host another edition of The Twilight Show here for Teacher Talk Radio. And it's an absolute pleasure and privilege to be here. So thank you very much for giving me your time. Um, You'll see that we've got there in the, uh, there's a few questions that we're asking. First of all, a few things to give your opinions on. I'll be looking in the first part of tonight's show at the implications of the new government white paper for schools, this uh, opportunity for all, um, and its implications in particular for initial teacher education building on last week. So tell me what you think. I'm also in the second half of the show going to be looking at how hard it is to capture teacher expertise and is it the same as experience um, as i said this show has the x factor so along with expertise and experience we also have expectations my next question is what expectations do we need to ensure that those entering the profession have in order to avoid a culture shock I'm also going to be asking the question about what makes the perfect structure to an ITE course. You'll notice since last week I'm referring to it as ITE, not ITT. And my focus paper a little bit later on in the 90 minutes I have with you this evening will be Mary Kennedy's excellent Passing the Practice. Um, If you've not read it, I strongly suggest that you do. And perhaps listening to this show this evening and some of my views around it might help you. Okay, so before we move into our look at the white paper um just a little bit of a reflection i suppose on where we are we're in one of those funny sort of twilight zones for teaching at the moment aren't we because i'm on holiday uh and i broke up last friday uh, but i'm very aware that many are not and so i'm really appreciative of anyone that's tuning in this evening who's actually going back into school tomorrow uh, I'm very lucky to be able to have had a few days off and to have attempted to make my way around a golf course a couple of times. Um, I saw a prime example today of uh, something I tweeted earlier about how uh, we were working our way up the fifth, and normally the green is on the other side of this uh, this dip. It's a bit of a, a bit of a blind tee shot, and for some reason there was a flag just in the top of the hill. And when we got there, we realised that what was happening was that the green was being repaired quite quickly, and someone had just dug a hole. In the top of the hill and put a flag in and then just quickly run the mow around it twice um, and it gave me the you know sort of sense it's a bit like when somebody phones in sick in your department at eight thirty nine, and they're teaching period one and you've got a registration as well you've got to quickly set some cover okay and that uh, <laughs> reminded me just a little bit of what it's like to just make do and hopefully mend okay so let's get started with what we're going to look at this evening, and that is in particular around these white paper implications. Now, there has been a fantastic report uh, produced by the TES, which I'm going to be looking at initially, just around some of the key findings um, of this particular uh, white paper and the overview. Um, what they've done is they've created a uh, an education insights report, and we're really starting to look at some of the government data around the learning loss over the pandemic. We're looking at some of the uh, updated safeguarding guidance, the main issues affecting schools at the moment, the new curriculum in Wales, um, but also in particular, the school's white paper. And we want to look at really what the government agenda is for education. Um, So first and foremost, if we just put this in a bit of context, there's been, according to the uh, the data published by the London School of Economics, that um, students in England and Northern Ireland have lost 61 days of learning um, uh, owing to Covid between March 2020 and April twenty one. So at the height of the pandemic, that's a rather significant amount, isn't it? 61 days, um, Scotland and Wales also in the 60s, but slightly higher. Um, Drill that down into uh, what we're looking at, the teacher absence rate. They find that 2018 2018-19, so pre-pandemic, um, we've got a teacher absence rate of 2.1%, which is fair enough. Um, autumn 2021, and as a leader in a school, I know what this has been like to try and deal with, 6.4% for teacher absence rate. And so, again, that's a massively... Increased figure, and it's something that has to be dealt with. For every absent teacher, there is disruption for a student. There is also another teacher that has to try and cover that lesson, and there's also then the implication for the absence of support staff. I'm sure we're noticing and appreciating far more the quality of our support staff in schools, especially when they're not there. Um, learning loss has been significant. Again, they found actually the most learning loss took place in primary in the lockdown of spring 2021. Um, with an arguably two to three months of loss of learning which is huge again when we equate for how many days are being taken off Um, learning loss in secondary particularly around reading a significant one and a half months of loss there Um, and when leaders and teachers were surveyed uh, the biggest challenge facing their schools um, was actually having the funding to deal with the loss of learning through covid now students can always catch up There are always going to be situations where we have students who perhaps join a school late or transfer from another school and take a backward step. Um, That catch up can always happen. But I think it's important that we acknowledge the challenge facing schools at this time. So we take that data further and they tell us what would have the biggest impact on you staying in the teaching profession. And I could not believe this statistic. Perhaps I'm being naive, but it was workload reduction. 60.9% of responses to that question, were that workload reduction would have the biggest impact on staying in teaching. That's why I've raised the question at the start about what expectations we need to ensure that those entering the profession have about our fantastic vocation, but also what actual expectations we have in regards to what it is that our job is and what it is that we're expected to do. Um, uh, A colleague of mine, someone I have the privilege to work with, um, not in the same setting, but uh, certainly in a professional capacity, asked me or asked a a question of a few people about moving into senior leadership. And I actually gave the advice that I felt it was um, something to be done at the right time if you're confident that you appreciate what that would entail. The fact that your directed 1265 is taken from you and you can be expected to be hither thither and there but also that you're that's why you're going into it because you want leadership okay and so i think that's a really interesting statistic perhaps if you've got any uh some some points that you want to raise on that please do genuinely please do um to go on from that so these surveys that the tes did and various other things conducted this month Um, The following options, which has the biggest demand on your time, appears to be significantly assessment and feedback. Now, we know from that very famous quote uh, from Dylan William and uh, Black that assessment or feedback should be more work for the recipient than the donor. So if... 51.9% 51.9% of our time as a teacher is spent on assessment and feedback, I'm going to argue that we're perhaps focusing on the wrong things or that we need more help to understand the right ways to go about things. So perhaps that's a focus for another edition of my Twilight show here on a Thursday evening. So some interesting data there. And again, I will use the phrase interesting data because it is, if you understand the context behind it. Um, just to sort of lay a bit more of a foundation for this white paper exploration. Um, there's some procurement pitfalls. Uh, there's been some changes to the KCSIE, uh, particularly um, one which uh, I thought was really rather interesting coming into focus from September 2022. If uh if approved after consultation, is that schools should consider, in inverted commas, performing online searches on job applicants, including their social media accounts. Now, um, yes, I tell trainees every year, at least three or four times a year, check your settings, make sure that you're in the right place at the right time, and not the wrong place at the wrong time. If it's on the internet, do you really want people to see it, etc. The fact that schools it should consider performing online searches on their applicants, including their social media accounts. Gosh, you know, does that, you know, is that a transgression? Uh, Does that cross a line? Be interested to know your thoughts. Um, Also suggested that school leaders should ensure safeguarding training is part of the induction process for governors and for trustees. Now, I am a parent governor of my children's primary school, and I underwent safeguarding training, but obviously that indicates that it's not, You know, certainly not endemic across the sector, Um, and then there's going to be further guidance around domestic violence and prevent, Um, there are also proposed expansions of the teacher regulation agency powers, uh, and then other aspects around Covid, Um, but They do move down into a really interesting and I'm talking here about the TES report, a really interesting analytical section around the changes for a sector that is still reeling in shock. Now, those of you that listened to me and thank you last week and thank you for those that have returned, um, realised that as we talked through the, uh, the data around applications for those coming into teaching, And also that data that sat around retention and recruitment in our sector, we realised and I think we probably came to the conclusion or I came to the conclusion for you um, that we are a sector in trouble. Um, We have this promise of that return to normality, but we're still in schools defined by Covid. Uh, Anyone who's out there working in schools at the moment will know that attendance, as we cited earlier, is low behavior is is restless it's febrile actually in some situations and um, I think what that doing is having a big impact on staff we've got to remember that it's not just students that have had time away from the classroom but staff as well and that's something that I talked about again last week Um, if you weren't able to join me go back and check out the uh, the podcast the download for that Um, so what I wanted to do was to just get to A couple of other areas of discussion and to ask you your opinion um there's a fantastic new curriculum being developed in wales and i've had the privilege um to work with some of those who are actually involved in designing it uh so the fantastic team at impact wales who i'm hoping a bit of a shout out for them i'll be able to tempt onto this show in the future um, have been working together with um uh, the cfw the curriculum for wales team uh and they're looking at some interesting approaches around how they can um make changes to GCSE the brand will be retained but the the GCSEs themselves will change to reflect the curriculum changes itself um and they're really trying to ensure um that their uh, in particular a p- uh, proposal that was put together about um a new combined language and literature GCSE for English, which would be roughly equivalent to 1.5 standard GCSEs. Now, if you're an English teacher, and I know a few of you out there that um, very kindly listen to me are, what would your opinion be on that? What would you think about 1.5 GCSEs worth in a combination? Um, It might be interesting to look at actually how language at GCSE differs vastly from from English language at A level. But anyway, um, further things to consider as we move through the report um, are this school's white paper. Now, this is what I wanted to spend a bit of time talking about, because, again, even at a glance, there's a significant amount of stuff in here that I think we do desperately need to be aware of as practitioners. Um, So currently, 2019, the proportion of pupils reaching expected standard in Key Stage 2 Literacy and Maths, 65%. Okay. now, does that mean that the expected standard is too high? (laughs) If we've only got 65% of them there, does it mean that the um, teaching is uh, of insufficient quality to enable uh, these people to, you know, these students to reach those targets? Are the targets lacking in context? Are they generic targets for very non-generic settings? Do they counter for or take into account variant demographics, advantage and disadvantage? I'm not sure they do. Um, but the new target for 2030, so half past eight, for so in about you know two and, two and a quarter hours, that's ambitious. Ninety percent of primary pupils will hit the expected standard in maths and literacy. Um, theoretically worth around 30 billion for the wider economy. So rough maths shows me that's a 25 percent increase um, in 11 years. Well, actually, it's not 11 years, is it? It's eight, because we're starting now. And what we are doing is starting from a uh, a point significantly further behind where we were, I think, because of the impact. Um, the average GCSE grade in English language and maths will become a five by 2030, not its current four. Now, I'm still talking to parents getting their heads around the fact that there's numbers instead of grades. So I think there's a significant amount of training and support that needs to be offered to the parents parents, I was going to say parental community, parents out there. Um, Every school, this is an interesting one, um, will be in a multi-academy trust, but free schools can start as single school trusts. So singular plurals, I suppose. Um, Again, uh, a fully trust-led system with a single regulatory approach, including trusts established by local authorities. Now, Again, this is really one that's going to have to have an awful lot of discussion and debate. Much of it will rage. Plenty already has. But is that a good thing? My own experience of multi-academy trusts um, is that they, as with everything in in education, there's all good intention, isn't there? Nobody goes into teaching or no one walks into a classroom design, you know, with the intent of you know, sabotaging what's going on. Nobody goes into middle leadership with the intent of pulling down the crumbling facade of their department. Nobody goes into senior leadership intent on wrecking staff morale and destroying the data dashboard. And I don't think that, you know, multi-academy trusts enter into what they do because they want ultimately to offer improvement for a, a defined sector. They have their rationale and their ethos. They have their focal areas and they work in them. But how context specific, you'll notice already after only you know 20 minutes of this show and 90 minutes last week, I'm obsessed with context. And the trouble is that's because context is vitally important. If we don't appreciate context, then all of a sudden what we're doing is applying generic principles. And we know that one size fits very, very few in teaching and in education. So that's an interesting one. We also have this proposal of a 32.5 hour week expected of mainstream schools. Um, And again, I wonder if that's going to lead any particular uh, changes in timetable. Again, from my perspective of leadership, we've sat around the table um, and we've looked at whether or not we hit that. It may be that we have to make some changes or changes have to be made in certain areas around how long breaks and lunches are. Uh, That's got to come in by September 2023, but it is the current average. So, comment in from at lesson copy. For Key Stage 2, individual subjects are already close to 80% as a national average. Fantastic. Wasn't aware of that. Thank you for giving me that bridges that gap fantastically. The combined is 65, and it's this which has always been tricky to raise. All kids good at all three. Agreed, entirely. That is hard, isn't it? Because, you know, you may find that certain subject areas certain disciplines certain domains are a strength but others are a weakness to raise the bar across all three and push it up is going to be very hard work but that's fantastic to see that we're getting closer to where we want to be um, but only in those individual subjects and i think that's the, uh, the the comment being made there in the uh in the the text in that we do have to work hard to raise all three together Continuing as we look um, uh, through the report, it it cites to us that these multi-academy trusts will also have a new accountability regime. Love the word regime, but also the word accountability, because it's very easy to avoid um, and often very easy to palm off, but never very easy to take. Um, uh, In my perspective, certainly I feel that if you're not accountable for anything, then you have no real purpose in what you're doing. Um, And if you can't accept the accountability for the things that you're doing, then you're not really doing them with any great meaning. Um, So I think that's quite interesting. Uh, The government will launch a review looking at accountability and the regulation of multi-academy trusts. Uh, So um, a government, any school that gets two consecutive RIs um, will be moved into a MAT if they aren't already. Again, is that a good idea? Nah. I'm I'm torn, um, a bit like Natalia Imbruglia. Um, I don't, at this point in time, I haven't made my mind up. I'm not sure if, if shoving a school into a mat to improve its RI is necessarily the best way. We certainly know that, okay, this is semi-solution focused. We're starting with an end in mind, and that end is get them out of RI. But I think something will need to be done in terms of looking at why they're RI in the first place. Before then deciding which mat they enter. And if they enter a local mat, is it just because that mat is local? If they enter a national mat, why? What's the reputation? Okay. Um, And so uh, I think there's a lot more to come out of the report when it comes to looking at these ideas around multi academy trusts. One thing that interests me again in the report is that schools will have to administer this parent pledge. Okay. Again, nicely alliterative. We like a parent pledge. Government through schools will promise that any child who falls behind in English or maths will get the support they need to get back on track. Hmm. So schools will essentially pledge to do their jobs. Uh, That's the way I see that. Um, uh, And Ofsted will be responsible for ensuring that that happens. Well, again, that seems to be the current state of affairs. Uh, I would hope that all schools endeavour to support any child who falls behind in English or maths. And again, if they're not, then maybe they need to think a little bit about what they stand for um, and what their ethos is. Other areas, we've got these priority areas, 55 new education investment areas, EIA, EIA, it's in the game. Um, 24 of those as priority areas that will receive additional funds. Um, I currently work in one of those areas, so I'm interested to see how that develops itself. Um, This is one that's of big interest to me this evening. And as you know, my focus uh, as a a host of this show, and as a a practitioner in general, is that my work in initial teacher education, um, and in particular, the development of high quality, um, pragmatic, efficient teachers for our schools. Now, the Oak National is going to be set up as this curriculum body. So this, it's you know, the Oak National was fantastic. You know, this free lesson resource centre, set up by amazing people at the height of social and global confusion. And and you know, I I, I will uh, throw a gauntlet down and meet anyone at dawn who dares to criticise the reasons why Oak National was set up. Um, but they will become an arm's length government body. Uh, So, again, it depends, I suppose, on how long your arm is. And they will work with initial teacher training providers. So they will work with people like myself to provide high quality lesson examples and resources. Now, I'm going to dig further into this one, because from my perspective, that's going to be an invaluable resource in terms of yet another library library into which i can dig and delve the trouble i found recently with initial teacher education curriculum design is that when there's so much good stuff you want it all in there and i think curriculum is as much about curation of existing materials as it is about the design and facilitation of um new materials uh so that sort of idea of c- curation over creation i suppose um And again, you know, what do we think about that? Is that something that that we are concerned about in teaching? Do you find that actually sometimes you spend too much time looking around for what's already out there and not enough time creating your own context specific material? be interesting. We've got this IT infrastructure pledge. I won't talk to you too much about IT. Um, And then we also have this confirmation of what we call the golden thread. It sounds a little bit like a chapter from a C.S. Lewis book, but essentially these updates to the Early Career Framework and the National Professional Qualifications, the MPQ, their frameworks, and the new Initial Teacher Training Framework, so the ITTF, um, all confirmed. And they were already in progress again before the white paper was released. Um, There's not a significant amount of change necessarily in some of those things. Um, But there is plenty, as the report says, for us to ponder. Um, Other things that I've found of interest, we talked about the excellent teacher for every child chapter last time round. But actually, if we look now, we've got a few more interesting areas that I'm going to just quickly throw out there. And please do. Let's hear what you've got to say. Text in. Let me know your thoughts on this. Um, We've got that legislation to modernise rules on recording attendance with a new national data solution. Um, which sounds interesting. Uh, we've talked about, haven't we, the 32.5-hour working week? But then also, forgive the uh, the rustling as I fold my piece of paper over. Um, what we have got are plans updated to support sport and music education, and a new cultural education plan that will come out in 2023. Now, again, any new plans? for me, from an initial teacher education perspective, are interesting. They need me to understand them because what I'm gonna have to do is I'm gonna have to um, acculturate new into the profession people into these plans and ideas. They need to understand their starting points. What's your thought on that? What will a cultural education plan look like? Um, We've got a new careers programme for primary schools in areas of disadvantage. Um, and then improved professional development for teachers and leaders on careers education. Now, this is something that um, uh, with my secondary skit trainees last week, actually, we looked at the importance of creating and curating. And again, there's that lovely little alliterative phrase, um, effective careers education, because it can have significant impact. But um, there were some startling research findings from from the Sutton Trust relatively recently, I think it was like putting on the path it was called something like that Apologies for not giving you the exact reference, but they talked about in that the data that indicated that certain students, just a significant majority of students actually if majorities can ever be significant um or vice versa, were actually not being able to access high quality careers information education guidance support now yes, a lot of that is going to be pandemic related, particularly those students. Um, who are perhaps in years 10 and 11 and have had, uh, you know, time away, work experience, you couldn't do work experience, and we all, we all live behind our computers. But um, I think it's really, really sad that there's students out there that don't have an understanding of how to even construct an aspiration, let alone how to try and make one a reality. Um, and if we can't offer students the opportunity to construct aspirations based on real-world connections through our curriculum curation and, cur- and creation, It's the third time ticket um then i think what we're doing is again we're starting at a real disadvantage careers advice careers education careers development in secondary schools in particular for me is an essential aspect of a high quality highly performing setting Um, we've talked about open national um we've also got this clear policy on attendance let's have a little look at targeted support because we've got this parent pledge that i discussed a few moments ago um, and government has pledged to make sure schools communicate these support um, to parents. It's interesting that in their words, so the words um, of Top Gear magazine. No, that's a that's a different radio broadcaster. In the words of the government report, um, English and maths child that falls behind should receive open quote timely and evidence based support to enable them to reach their full potential. And then we see this lo- the, the lovely rearing, the crack and awakes, the, the evidence-based phrase. If we say evidence-based, people will assume that we're taking it seriously. If you don't use evidence for your decisions, I don't know what you're using generally. Everybody uses evidence to make decisions all the time. I think the important thing is that the right evidence is used in the right way, critically understood by those that use it, and applied in such a way as to ensure that the desired outcome is met. Um, I'm not quite sure why they feel the need to use evidence-based or a lovely nebulous word like timely. Um, But again, quotation there. It's all good stuff. It's all meaningful. It's all good intentions. And perhaps I'm being a little critical, but I just want to draw your attention to some of these areas. Uh, We have the tutoring to become a core academic option in the pupil premium menu with a vibrant tutoring market. Um, now a, a vibrant tutoring market sounds excellent doesn't it? I, I don't know if it's actually a sort of physical reality and there's, there's sort of stands of tutors there, you know, touting their wares and, and yelling their little curriculum slogans at passers-by, but certainly there's not been particularly strong start to that and I'm, I'm sure we're all aware of what I'm talking about there. Um, we do have further reference to the Education Endowment Foundation will be funded with at least £100 million. To continue its crucial work to build the evidence base again there it's that phrase um for open quotes at least the next decade so i suppose that takes us to that 2030. Uh, and also we have a further 55 million pounds for the accelerator fund again that's a fantastic name isn't it accelerator fund um, to develop and scale up the best evidence literacy and numeracy interventions on just slight diversion i was reading a book i'm um, reading a book at the moment that um, just sort of explores development of English language and certain phrases. And apparently, one of the reasons that Stevenson's rocket won that sort of um, uh, steam-powered engine competition in the uh, the eighteen hundreds was partially because it gave itself a good name, and it was called Rocket. Um, because some of the other entrants were called things like the non parai and um, version one and stuff like that. So perhaps calling it Accelerator Fund um, in order to de- develop and scale up this best evidence, literacy and numeracy intervention might help it take off the ground. Who knows? Um, again, let's continue just a little uh, a little meander through where we are at the moment. There's an awful lot in this report. As I said, if you have read it or if you've got any opinions on it or if you're you're listening and you're not sure what I'm talking about, or you want to make comment on what it is that you think I'm trying to say, then please do get in touch. Please do text in and let me know your thoughts. Um, So let's go in then to the stronger and fairer system. So this idea about being in a strong multi-academy trust by 2030 um, and trusts are expected to work towards serving at least 10 schools. Now, it doesn't appear to me to stipulate how many or what proportion that is, primary, secondary, or whether a trust has to encapsulate both, um, or uh, 7,500 pupils. The proportion of schools a trust can run in a particular area will be capped, though no cap will be imposed on trust size overall. So that's quite interesting, I suppose, um, in that. As we go back to what we talked about earlier, we have this issue whereby any school with consecutive RIs will be sort of pushed into a trust. What if the local trust is full? What if the local trust has has met its cap? Um, That would be an interesting one to try and work our way around. Um, But of course, this is all being underpinned by those intervention powers over academy trusts. And clearer expectations for that high-quality, inclusive education, school improvement, financial management, parental engagement, workforce, de- workforce, workforce deployment, training, and retention. Um, top slicing will need to be, uh, or will face new transparency measures. Um, and in exceptional circumstance, it'd be interesting again, slightly nebulous quotation, what that means. Um, good schools may be able to request moving trust. So that'd be interesting, wouldn't it? That'd be a transfer window. I'd quite like that. Be interesting, sort of on deadline day, to see which particular school has has, has made it to which particular trust and why. Um, we've talked there about the priority areas and the disadvantaged education investment areas. Um, the DFE will consider their open brackets, bids for high quality, standalone, trust-free schools but avoid converting schools as standalone academies. So sort of starting afresh as opposed to rolling something in glitter, perhaps. Um, and then there's a bit of a focus on governance arrangements. And then we have councils with their backstop powers to require trust to admit children and to object to schools published admission numbers. So councils will be taking responsibility for in-year admission and admission faces a new statutory framework. Um, So it's really interesting, isn't it, just to see the range of different areas that this report covers, the aspirations that it holds, the intentions that perhaps lie behind the wording, um, and also, potentially apologies for the slight ping if one uh, came through in your ear there, Um, and also I think the way in which uh, the wording has been chosen, especially to suggest whether or not things are fait accompli or whether, indeed, the consultations that will take place as part of this will allow for some wriggle room, as it did very slightly in the ITT market review recently. So there's a really uh, a good part of the report uh, from the TES written by their teaching and learning editor, Helen Amas, um, talking about how prescription increases as targets harden. So the real feel and I I think a lot of people that I've spoken to in the professions recently, certainly in those who are, are involved in teacher education, teacher professional development, is that pedagogy as a concept is being shifted into a preferred style. Um so the the government has I, I think latched onto ideas around sort of direct or explicit instruction. There, there, there's a lot of things that they're working with in regards to how that's an appropriate medium through which to develop students. Um, I think perhaps the, the core content framework for ITT and the early career framework support that, sh- that, that push um, because their slightly restrictive evidence bases certainly draw on areas, you know, those those particular jigsaw pieces that build up this overall image of, of, of direct instruction as a as an overarching pedagogy. And i I'd be honest, I don't have my objections. I do favor direct instruction with small D and small I. Um, uh, the capital D, capital I was an actual education program uh, in the 1960s in America. Um, but um, I think what's gonna be interesting and and Helen Amas tries to drill down into a little bit there is how individuality and and autonomy and and again, context, nuance um, will will start to shine through. I, I do see the core content framework and the early career framework themselves just you know developments of the existing teacher standards and some rebranding and rewording they for me can i'm quite happy for them to be this 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 undercoat this sealant this this ron seal other brands are available on the on 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 the base it's it's the, the first layer if you will of the compost and the mulch but then from that surely we must be allowing new um new blooms to grow new ideas to blossom new contexts. we can put the same sort of mulch layer down across an entire garden um, but we're not going to grow the same plants in each part because there's going to be different elements of light and shade and moisture and depth and growth and i think we've got to allow our sector the freedom to flex and the freedom to um ensure that their pedagogies their their chosen approaches are domain specific they work in their area and we have um, trust in those working in those schools to make the best decisions for the students in front of them. I'm not convinced that a sort of national pedagogy is ever going to be the right way forward, uh, whether that's from you know starting at year dot and moving through to, to year 13. Um, I really don't think that it's the way forward. Uh, so I do hope that there's flexibility. Um, and in particular, that all of this guidance, um, and we all know what guidance means really, in inverted commas, it means you should do this, Um, uh, that it, it doesn't take away the vital autonomy that teachers need in order to feel professionally fulfilled, in order to feel that vital sort of self-efficacy and actualization that's necessary to flourish and develop in a classroom environment. If we strip away the individuality and the professional identity of our practitioners and create this sort of... Um, I don't like the idea of this sort of generic teacher bot who 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 sort of through a a sort of intro you know the button is the switch is flicked and out from their mouth is this process of pedagogy that's been agreed as a general approach we're not I really don't think that we're going to encourage um, people to enter the profession to start with and that takes me back to what I talked about last week and I really don't think that it's got any help for the future of our profession if we allow that sort of thing to happen so I really do feel that we have to make an effort now um, to take all of those fantastic ideas that exist within our education sector um, and continue to develop. So we, it comes to the uh, the last chapter of the TES report, where Dan Worth, um, who uh, has done uh, some again some fantastic work around analysis and policy leadership and market content, um, says that schools will continue to innovate, they'll continue to adapt, and they'll continue to experiment because they need to and i do think that's really really important um if schools feel as if they just need to sit back and allow things to happen without ever sort of raising a raising a hand in query or uh, two hands raised in prayer perhaps or a a voice raised in 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 critique what's going to happen is that we are going to end up with this slightly homogenous brand of of british teaching that isn't really going to stand us apart. And I think the beauty of our sector is how individual areas and aspects of it are. And yes, we can maintain certain things that have been enforced upon us. Um, I'd be surprised if many schools went back to -to face-to-face parents' evenings, for example. Um, But there are a significant amount of things that we don't need to feel as if we have to stick with just because that's what's happening at the moment, or just because um we're told to and i don't mean to be uh you know i'm not sort of tub thumping there but i urge consideration of autonomy so the the last part of the tes report and i'll just uh, touch on this before we we take a break for the news um is first and foremost the secondary primary to secondary transition is going to be hugely challenging again talking from experience talking from my work as a parent governor of a, a primary school in a what would be classed as a relatively disadvantaged location but but in a more sort of wider advantaged area if that makes sense a disadvantaged pocket in an advantage area um yeah the amount of um, identified and unidentified need that needs to be understood and sympathetically catered for from primary through to secondary is going to be a real challenge for schools. Key Stage 3 will again fall under the microscope, so there's going to be a big look at a definition of what Key Stage 3 really is and why it's there. You know, how good is Key Stage 3 provision to ensure that GCSE outcomes are the best they can be for the students, and how I think appropriate is the Key Stage 3 curriculum to the wider ethos of the setting. Um, they cite, I think, quite accurately, and again, speaking from, from talking to colleagues around how SEND diagnosis backlog is going to have a knock on effect, particularly you know, lots of referrals for assessments. are um, uh, uh, They were cancelled or postponed during lockdown. And the other issue is that, of course, medical professionals calling on teacher insights. Um, well, teachers weren't there teachers can't give insights into pupils developing behavioural needs and requirements when they didn't see them apart from on a screen with their with their camera off. Uh, We know from last week uh, that teacher recruitment continues to be exceptionally difficult. Um, I mean, what could that mean? Uh, I mean, the TES suggests that there's going to be a record number of vacancies uh, with supply decreasing. Um, So will we end up with merged or larger class sizes? Um, Are we going to enter into some sort of bidding war? So schools will increase salaries for new starters as much as they can. But can they afford that? I'm not sure if they can. Uh, Academisation with a sharpened focus. And then, of course, this mounting anxiety as GCSEs and A-levels get underway. And gosh, I I, I teach largely year 10 and I can see them. I can see they're scared. And I think for certain groups in year 10 and 11, they haven't done proper examinations. Um, When I talk to my trainees, those of whom who are are working with GCSE or A-level examination classes, they're having to try and not only manage students with the, the, you know, the, the basic content, but also all of those those areas around sort of metacognitive and self-regulatory development that are lacking because they haven't been supported and developed. So they're not only learning to teach, but they're learning to teach students who don't understand what it's like to learn properly. And I do think that, again, is gonna have a significant impact on the way in which teacher training goes forward and the things that will make up a good curriculum. And then also the way in which teaching in general goes forward and how curriculum needs are going to be balanced. Gosh that was quite a summary wasn't it and I appreciate that we've rattled through um, what is in fact a sizable report and a significant number of implications stemming from it but I hope that summary has helped and I hope that you're starting to look on your own um, uh, teaching your own practice through an appropriately reflective lens and that you're framing that reflection in an appropriate way. So I think what we're going to do is we're going to take a little bit of a break for the news. What I'd love is for you to text in around some of those questions that I uh, put at the start of the show. So we've talked there about the government white paper, but if there's anything that's arisen from my summary, throw that in for me, please text in and get in touch. Um, I'm gonna be looking after the break at uh, teacher expertise. Uh, And in particular, how or how not it relates to experience, and then how that, as a combination, because of course we talk about this X factor, then leads on to what expectations we need to make sure those entering the profession have. Uh, I also asked you earlier on, uh, in your opinion, what makes the perfect structure to an ITE course, and then we've got our focus paper, which is the fantastic Passing the Practice by Mary Kennedy. So hopefully, it's an awful lot to cram in, um, but. Please don't go away. Uh, I'm going to take you now to the news and then I'll be back with you in around about eight minutes time.
0: This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.wetheslackgroup.co.uk to find out more.
2: Are you looking to take your phonics practice forward? Then Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised is the programme for you With a Slack group, the leading provider of schools and children's homes for children with special educational needs.
0: This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn.
3: In England, the latest government data shows that 178,800 pupils were absent from school due to COVID, a decrease of 0.3% since March the 17th. The number of staff absences has also decreased by 0.4% in the same time period. School leaders are however, still expressing concern over the ongoing disruptions and both the NAHT School Leaders Union and the Association of School and College Leaders have called for Education Secretary Nadeem Sahavi to reinstate free lateral flow tests for pupils and staff. General Secretary Paul Whiteman said, we continue to hear a sense of deep frustration from school leaders as they struggle to deal with the significant and ongoing disruption caused by COVID whilst the government removes every measure they have for controlling it. We all assumed living with COVID meant there would be very low case levels. This is clearly not the case, and absence rates remain at concerningly high levels. School leaders feel they have been abandoned. In Lancashire, video games are being used to teach children about climate change and flooding. The game is called Rivercraft, and has been devised by the Environment Agency in collaboration with Microsoft. It is based on Minecraft and integrates flood mitigation. Andy Brown, Flood Risk Manager for the Environment Agency said, this is an amazing opportunity for students and a project we are proud to be part of. Not only will young people learn about a major flooding scheme in the UK, but they will also discover more about climate change, the environment, flooding and the types of roles available for careers in science, technology, engineering and mathematics. Justin Edwards, Director of Learning Programs, Minecraft, said, We know people around the world love Minecraft and so it is really rewarding for us to see Minecraft encouraging students to talk about and engage with environmental issues. This has been your latest Teachers Talk Radio news with Gail Glen.
1: Okay, welcome back everybody. Um, And hopefully uh, you're still with me and hello to anyone new. Um, In the first half of this evening's show, we looked at the Implications behind the white paper and the government's agenda for education over the next eight years um, and I posed a few questions that would be really interesting to hear your point of view on what we're going to do in the second half of tonight's show is that we are going to be looking at what we call the X factor. Now I've called it the X factor purely because um, the three words that I chose all begin with the letters EX. But I think they are all intertwined and I think they are all vitally important. So my three words are expertise, experience, and expectations. Now, prior to going into initial teacher education, I was lucky enough to work um, uh, and still do work in senior leadership, but, a, but with a focus I uh, used to have on professional learning and development. Um, and in particular, looking at quality of teaching and how we can not only capture it, but also look to improve it. Um, and there's a variety of myths That permeate the world of teacher education, teacher professional development, some of which we just haven't got time to go into today, some of which are obvious to those who are interested, um, but many of which perpetuate. Um, In particular, the myth that teachers stop improving after five years uh, and actually, you know, they just go on to sort of hit this little plateau of practice and and from that there's no need or no point for them to develop Um, so the question i'm asking and i'd be interested to hear anyone's views if they want to text or call in is that we're looking at what expertise actually means now this is a really interesting subject for me because i have my trainees will will approach me and some of them will say right you know what what does outstanding look like how how can i be a, an outstanding teacher what's an outstanding lesson and that's what they want to know um not all of them some of them and, and to me, the first thing I do is I, I, I take the word outstanding from their mouth and I, I, I screw it up into a metaphorical ball and I throw it into the education bin um, because I don't like the word outstanding. Um, in particular, I don't like the expectation of new teachers that they need to be delivering 24 hours worth of outstanding teaching every week. Um it, that in itself is a ridiculous concept. And it will abs- you know, if we said earlier on, didn't we, that some of the main issues cited around reten- retention or, or departure from the profession is workload. It's a pejorative. Um, it's not. It's just what you have to do for your job. But it's how much you manage, how well you manage it that's important, isn't it? Um, uh, is that, you know, if you're trying to teach, you're setting yourself the expectation of teaching 24 hours worth of outstanding lessons in your own definition of outstanding every week, you are literally just going to burn yourself into the ground, not literally, I don't mean literally. Um, But I think that's really important. I've been doing a lot of uh, sort of digging around really over recent years about definitions of expertise. And in particular, trying to offset expectations Um, of early career teachers and new teachers and those entering the profession against what expertise really means and how experience is as good uh, an indicator early on of developing expertise as uh, simply sort of throwing yourself hither, thither and there into absolutely everything. Um, So some of the main areas that I look to explore, um, I'm particularly interested in Dreyfus's five-stage model of the acquisition of expertise, and actually how we move through um, stages that begin um, begin with novice uh, and then ever so, you know, carefully and gently move their way through uh, from uh, that start point into this area of expertise. And so Dreyfus and Dreyfus, this five-style model the mental acquisition, of the mental activities involved in directed skill acquisition. And it's a fascinating paper. Um, and just to read their abstract, what they tell us is that in acquiring a skill by means of instruction and experience, the student normally passes through five developmental stages, which we designate novice, competence, proficiency, expertise and mastery. And they argue based on analysis of descriptions of acquisition that as the student, and in my case, it's the trainee teacher, becomes more skilled. He or we're going to put into, you know, uh, uh, whatever their depends less on abstract principles and more on concrete experience. And they look at progressive change in the performers ways of perceiving or, or seeing their task environment. So I begin the teacher training with these, I, I think these have preformed opinions. Of, of what schools are like and often those who perhaps are switching careers are coming back into teaching or coming into teaching for the first time and their opinion of school is simply with the school they left however many years ago um, and there are issues as Dreyfus put in involved in facilitating advancement um, the, the introduction is really interesting to the paper and I know I, I don't like reading to you because it's, it's not Jackanory but Anyone who wishes to acquire a new skill is immediately faced with two options. They can, like a baby, pick it up by imitation and floundering trial and error, or they can seek the aid of an instructor or instructional manual. The latter approach is far more efficient and in the case of dangerous activities such as aircraft piloting, (laughs) essential. Um, And so I think that's, uh, you know, the way in which i like to build a curriculum and the way in which i like to approach the training and development of new teachers i have to consider and you know really understand that they are novices um, they will have a range of different experiences and they will have a range of different expertise but ultimately teaching they need to start from this context-free decomposition of task environment and so that's that's part of where i begin my thinking um another thing that's really important that we in teacher education acknowledge especially initial teacher education is that novices and experts think very differently and again we have some famous papers and a lot of famous reference points Um, in particular Chai and Glazer's nature of expertise uh, which is is well worth looking at but they talk about what it means to be an expert in their introduction and again I don't like reading to you but they say that expertise became an intriguing subject for investigation as a result of work due to developments in artificial intelligence and cognitive psychology so they became absolutely fascinated really with the way in which you know expertise is formed what it means what it looks like and how it's developed Um, and they they talk about a range of ways in which expertise can be looked at Uh, they find that experts excel mainly in their own domains. So there's little evidence, or certainly they found little evidence, that persons highly skilled in one domain can transfer it to another. Um, That might be because of what, uh, as they quote Minsky and Papert say, around an intelligent person might be that way because of specific local features of their knowledge, organising knowledge, rather than because of global qualities of his thinking. Um, so that's really important. I'm placing trainees in a range of settings. If you work with trainees, appreciate that they go from setting to setting and they're not always learning um, the way you do it. Uh, Experts perceive large, meaningful patterns in that domain. So automaticity is developed. Experts are fast. They perform the skills of their domain and quickly solve problems with little error. Um, They have superior, shorter and longer term memory stores. And certainly an ability to understand how to manage those they can represent problems in their domain at a deeper and more principled level than novices novices tend to be superficial again going back to what Dreyfus talk about and also that experts spend a great deal of time analyzing problems in a qualitative way um, as opposed to perhaps a more quantitative approach their self-monitoring skills are strong and Again, we have to look at how many of those skills are likely to be prevalent within um, a trainee teacher. The answer, with no offence to any trainee teacher, is going to be, uh, on day one, very few. Um, Chai Posner, in his introduction to the book, uh, asks the question, how do we identify a person as exceptional or gifted? One aspect is truly expert performance in some domain. And again, we keep hearing this word domain. For me... That is a really, really important aspect of developing teachers. Now, as I say, I'm trying to create supportive environments for trainees to to develop professional identities and unique aspects of their own practice. Um, but also I'm trying to support my novice teachers in those early stages of what um, Shulman defined as that pedagogical content knowledge. Um, and there's an awful lot of factors that have to come together and, and fall in. So experience doesn't guarantee expertise by any means, but I think certainly it's a contributing factor towards it. Uh, the practice, practice, practice. Um, again, if this is of interest to you, Erickson and his work around deliberate practice and then Deans for Impact's um, work around practice with purpose and how we're encouraging our guys, our treat, our teachers, our developers to, to create efficient, deep mental models. Um, Other areas of interest in this and again, please let me know what you think uh, around what Berliner had to say about competency and expertise and the fact that actually expertise takes a significant amount of time to develop and competence is unlikely to be developed um, until five to seven years in the profession and only then with a significant amount of practice and a significant amount of hard work. I mentioned last week and I'll mention again because I'm a big fan um, of uh, the work of Mike Hobbis uh, and in particular some of the things that he's looked at with colleagues around stagnation um, uh, and teachers perhaps getting into to ruts or reaching a point of you know, comfort, you know being comfortable without necessarily really wishing to push yourselves on and, and one of the key aspects of deliberate purposeful practice is going out of your comfort zone, pushing beyond your comfort zone and encouraging yourself through trial and through development to create these efficient mental models, these models of expertise. Uh, Other excellent areas uh, to look at, Harry Fletcher Wood's excellent book about the habits of success and how we have to acknowledge or get our teachers to acknowledge that change is hard. Um, And Fletcher Wood himself uh, gives a lovely checklist in the book about how to encourage teachers to change. And I I do think this can be used in a range of different ways. And again, I draw down on these ideas for my development with my trainees. I have to specify the change, inspire and motivate, ask teachers to commit, make starting easy, and I have to follow up. Now, of of, uh, Fletcher Wood's five suggestions there, Uh, The only one for me that isn't relevant in initial teacher education is specifying the change because I'm working on the assumption that we have uh, a form of tabula rasa with a trainee teacher on day one. Their mind is they're ready with this blank slate on which can be laid pedagogy and behaviour management. But they will always only, as we know from a principle of cognition, learn their interpretation of what it is that I teach them. And that's why we go back to what I said earlier about expectations. And how can we manage? That's our third X: experience, expertise, and then expert um, expectation. How can we manage a trainee teacher's expectation of what it is to become a teacher? You know, when uh, I'll ask anyone out there who, who wants to, to to text in, what were your expectations when you started your training? Were you one of those who wanted to change the world or were you one of those who thought this was going to be an easy life? Were you one of those who felt that actually, you know, I I need a fresh challenge. I need to do something with what I've got. Um, So what's that motivation to become a teacher? What experience do you think um, is necessary to help people have appropriate expectations for their teaching? So I ask you that. As I go through other areas of interest to me in, in researching this aspect, um, I do like to, to sort of go back in time a little bit and to think about actually how there are, as I think I probably said last week, no new ideas in teaching, but the fact that often nobody knows the old ideas. And there's a, a fantastic book by John Dewey called How We Think. Um, and in that, there are some some really interesting sort of points of practice that, that Dewey cites in particular around how thinking um is is developed and encouraged or not uh, depending on the way in which we we deal with uh the person we're asking to think so Dewey is writing back in 1910 I think the book How We Think is published um and in it uh, he. Uh, starts to go through a range of areas around training, thought and logical considerations um, and some of the things that we need to be aware of. But there's a fantastic um, bit at the end of the summary of the first chapter, which, again, if you don't mind, I will just read to you. And um, I just really like the way in which this is put. Um, uh, We may recapitulate by saying the origin of thinking is some perplexity, confusion or doubt. Thinking is not a case of spontaneous combustion. It does not just occur on, open quote, general principles. There is something specific which occasions and evokes it. General appeals to a child or grown-up to think, irrespective of the existence in their own experience of some difficulty that troubles them and disturbs their equilibrium, are as futile as advice to lift themselves up by their bootstraps. And yes, you know this is written 112 years ago, but I really do like the way in which we cannot just assume that thought will take place unless we give it a grounding, we give it a, a base, we give it a framework. Um, and Dewey concludes the summary of his chapter uh, The most important factor in the training of good mental habits consists in acquiring the attitude of suspended conclusion. So, not just, you know, first answer is all, um, and in mastering the various methods of searching for new material to corroborate or to refute the first suggestions that occur, to maintain the state of doubt and to carry on systematic and protracted inquiry. These are the essentials of thinking." And that's quite challenging, particularly when it comes to those entering a profession for the first time, those in initial teacher education. Maintaining a state of doubt and carrying on systematic and protracted inquiry. How can we give trainee teachers that expectation? How can we make them understand that in order to be successful, reflective practitioners who are able to develop, they must maintain a state of doubt and they must carry on throughout their training and indeed throughout their career, systematic and protracted inquiry. And then that's where we talk about becoming um, agents of inquiry inquiry for development inquiry for change there's been a lot of work on that in recent times as well about how being inquisitive and and using inquiry as a form of teacher agency allows us to open up new opportunities um, there's uh, again sort of drawing on a, a range of different papers and ideas but the uh, learning policy institute um, also give some interesting some some data and some breakdowns of the way in which teacher experience has a bit of an impact on teacher training, um, and also the way in which uh, actually, just because you get to a certain point in time, you don't stop developing. And there are highly sophisticated programs of professional development that can ensure that an awful lot of teachers continue to get an awful lot better. Yes, experience helps. There's very famous studies by Kraft and Pape, who indicate, and I referenced it last week, I think, um, indicate quite clearly that uh, supportive professional environments in particular are one of the greatest factors in allowing teachers to improve, but they've got to acknowledge that they need to. Um, And uh, one thing that I, I do work with a lot with my trainees, I cite to them always, Um, Robin Alexander's requirements for decision-making in that everything must be done with research evidence, pedagogical principle and educational aim. Otherwise, um, it is unsound. We cannot just do stuff because we're told to do it. Compliance is the worst form of defence. It is an unsound defence in education. So reflect on that. I've gone back through as we talk about expertise, which is this massive topic and give me your opinion. Please do text in. But um, novices and experts think very differently. In order to support my novice teachers or any novice teachers in the early stages of their development, we need to support them in their acquisition of pedagogical pedagogical content knowledge. We cannot guarantee experience um, uh, aligns with expertise. Okay, We can't assume that that's the case. Certainly, it's a contributing factor towards it. Um, We cannot, I don't think, take experience as a byword for expertise, but nor should we, um, you know, uh, assume expertise is acquired purely through experience. Um, I think the former experience is quantifiable, isn't it? Okay, you have been teaching for so many years. Whereas the latter is hugely specific, as we saw from from Dreyfus and we saw from Chai, that it is very specific to domain and to discipline Um, and educators such as myself, such as you, such as those, anyone who supports a teacher in any capacity, um, must acknowledge the difficulties. And I find this, especially in an initial teacher education with career switching, in in managing trainees who have to adjust to being novices again, Um, but life experience, sort of social acumen don't always equate into teacher quality. I think the duty of of initial teacher education is to ensure adequate, um, and I go with adequate uh, uh, as a base level, high quality preparedness for the realities of a challenging profession. But I've also got to ensure that their support is appropriate. Okay, and that makes me think about my mentor choice. And if you're a school leader, who do you choose as your mentor? Who do you choose to do the mentoring? Okay. Do you see it as just the opportunity for someone on a TLR to do a little bit extra for their money? Do you see, do you go down the timetable and you look at who's got a gap? Or do you actually genuinely consider that mentorship is a vocation? And with that comes that empathetic awareness of, of the stages of development that your early career teacher or your trainee is undergoing. OK, Um There are various approaches we can take, I think, to professional development, many of which are explored across a range of research, evidence, publications and ideas. And I'm not going to go into them now uh, because we haven't got time. But there's, I think, an increasing level, and I've certainly noticed this um, uh, in, in certain settings of what I'm going to call syllogism as professional development or syllogistic, I suppose professional development, you know, something must be done. This is something. Therefore, we must do it. All cats have four legs. My dog has four legs. Therefore, my dog is a cat. Okay, and I don't think that that approach is necessarily going to be the most successful one, particularly when we go back to what we looked at in the first half of this show about those challenges facing the sector. Those people who are citing workload as the main reason for potentially leaving the profession those schools that are faced with meeting the expectations laid out within the government white paper education agenda for the next seven to eight years by simply plucking professional development concepts out of the air and using them to solve ill-defined problems we are going to get ourselves into more of a mess um but again apologies i i started sort of sort of scrabbling towards my little soapbox there didn't i and i really mustn't do that Um, Because I promised myself and I promised you that I wouldn't. The one thing that I do want to just consider as we move towards the end of this little section, and before we just focus on our final paper for the day, um, is around that management of expectation. Remember, I called this section the X factor. Experience, expertise, expectations. And the key one there. Let's look at expectations. Let's think about the management of these guys that are coming in. These people that know that they want to teach, that they they can expect and are entitled to high quality initial teacher education. They are entitled to receive the very best from their chosen provider in their chosen route. We cannot, therefore, I don't think actually ethically, morally, we cannot teach them to teach without also teaching them the realities of teaching, if that makes sense. That was slightly, it wasn't as, well, perhaps wasn't as garbled as, it, as I thought it might have been looking back on it. But that's what I mean. We cannot teach them to teach without teaching them the realities of teaching. Um, and in particular, it's around expectation. It's around career development and that, that arc. Yes, we know from the Learning Policy Institute research. Yes, we know from Kraft and Pape. Yes, we know from all from Ericsson. Yes, we know from Berliner. Yes, we know from left, right, centre and, and all fields surrounding that the most exponential growth in teacher ability comes in the early stages. But what we mustn't see that exponential growth as or what teachers, early career teachers must not see that exponential growth as, is as, as a sort of, false indicator of ability because they're starting from scratch and they're getting better every day, as we all are. But I urge all early career teachers out there to not to become an Icarus. Do not look to create a set of leadership wings, ultimately forged from wax and feather and fly too close to the sun too early on. Because what's going to happen is that you're going to get burnt and your wings will melt. And I think ultimately, because our job, requires practice and practice and then a bit more practice and then some more practice. And it requires failure and it requires humility and it requires reflection and it requires honesty. I do worry that we're going to create an Icarus effect where we have too many high flyers getting their wings burned because they're learning leadership on the job. And we know that learning on the job, discovery learning, learning through inquiry like this, just isn't really a successful um, approach for a novice. And if we continue to sort of quantify novice status within the framework of of um, Dreyfus and, and Berliner, and we look in those early years, I'm still going to argue that anybody who's within their first three or four years of teaching is only really moving out of the novice phase and in towards Uh, areas perhaps of, uh, of slight advancement okay they they've moved out of novice and they've entered competence but even Dreyfus will tell you and I'll quote from the paper competence only comes after considerable experience actually coping with real situations in which the student notes recurrent meaningful component patterns and in particular we look at those poor, wonderful guys from our previous cohorts who are absolutely magnificent, but are also still learning their craft because they had impact of COVID lockdowns and limited opening. Um, They still don't have yet that considerable experience coping with those real situations. They're doing their damnedest and they're doing an amazing job. And many of them are, are making fantastic progress, but we can understand why some are struggling and why some need our support to stay in our fantastic profession, because we need to align their expectations of the role to its realities, okay? And the fact that in order to move through that competence phase into one of proficiency is going to take five to seven years. If that is the case, and we've got somebody who through As we've again cited this gap that's appearing in the profession because of recruitment and the fact that we're going to need more teachers and we haven't got enough and we've got to fill the gaps what's going to happen is that we're going to be pushing people towards roles that they don't need to be taking just yet and we're going to be giving people with all the very best intentions roles that perhaps they're two years away from being properly ready for and forcing them to learn on the job and because they're learning on the job they're making mistakes and that's fine because mistakes are important. But the trouble is, the higher up the tree you are, the bigger that mistake is in terms of its resounding impact as it flows down. And so we've got to be careful. And we've got to look after and really sort of not dampen by any means the expectations of our new teachers. But we've got to control them. We've got to make them real and we've got to make them um, definable. And if we can define their expectations in the form of where they want to be in a certain amount of time, then I do think that we're going to have um, significantly more chance of offsetting uh, any of those issues that might come around from what I've called earlier that Icarus effect. But anyway, (laughs) I mustn't, as I said, get on my little soapbox. Off I get. Now, I did promise that we would also spend a little bit of time in tonight's show looking at a paper. Uh, I do like to refer to a specific paper and its influence on me as a practitioner, but also your thoughts and your ideas around it. And certainly if it's a paper that you don't know, OK, then I'd love you to go and find it. Now, um, a couple of other areas that I uh, I haven't really had time to consider. Um, I was going to look at the work of John Hattie and his Politics of Collaborative Expertise Uh, But I think we can come to that another time. Um, We're going to look uh, in our next week's show, hopefully with a couple of special guests, um, again, at teacher development and initial teacher expectations. But we're going to focus on mentoring and we're going to look at the way in which we introduced high quality mentors to initial teacher education. But I'm going to look at two areas before I go to Kennedy. I'm just going to take you to Peps McRae's fantastic paper for the IFT, Expert Teaching. What is it and how might we develop it? Now, this was published four years ago, almost to the day. Okay, and in it, McRae, whose work I hugely admire. And if you're listening, Peps, come on the show. uh, He says that teaching quality is important. It is arguably the greatest lever at our disposal for improving the life chances of the young people in our care, particularly those from disadvantaged backgrounds. When the quality of a teacher's practice reaches a certain level, we might begin to describe it as expert teaching, Um, not teachers, but teaching. Okay. Uh, Teachers are made, not born, according to Hood. We don't have a clear consensus around what this entails. And so what McRae does is pulls together the best available evidence and provides us with certain things about expertise. First of all, that um, expertise can be considered in terms of teacher impact. So the influence teachers have on what their pupils think, do and achieve. Expertise can be defined as action. Um, So in order to have expert teachers make that great impact, they have uh, differences in perception. Uh, so they see their classrooms in a qualitatively different way. Uh, Simulation, so they can accurately simulate the consequences of various actions. Execution, um, they tend to do less than their colleagues as an expert, but arrive uh, and take longer to arrive at a diagnosis. That's because they consistently select the root most impactful interventions. And conservation, they conduct much of their practice on automatic pilot, enabling them to devote significant mental resources towards monitoring the complex, chaotic environment of the classroom. And that expertise um, and those increasingly powerful mental models are formed in the following domains, path, so pathway towards mastery, the pupils, knowledge of what pupils know and don't, pedagogy, So how learning works and how to catalyze it and then self-regulation. We organise or expert teachers will organise their knowledge um, uh, in the following mental models. It will be extensive, actionable, fluent and meaningful. Um, And the best way is to be intentional in our support of teachers. We must support teachers to study, to practise and to iterate. And if that training is going to be successful, if it is problem oriented, incrementally sequenced and supportively stretching alongside that, it must be socially situated back to context and it must be frequent and it must be sustained. Now, if you haven't dug into that paper before, I urge you to do so. It's fantastic. And it's a wonderful summary for someone. As I said, I'm fascinated by concepts of expertise and and how, you know performers in all domains reach and attain and maintain expertise. But enough of that, because that's not what I was going to talk about. I was going to talk very, very briefly, he says, haha, about the fantastic paper, Passing the Practice of Teaching. This is a paper by the great Mary Kennedy. It was printed in 2016. Um, and what this looks at, and this is why I find it really interesting, is, is that it's looking at teacher education programmes. And her opening sentence just rings home with everything I've tried to encapsulate this evening. Uh, Teacher education programmes typically teach novices about one part of teaching at a time. We might offer courses on different topics, so cultural foundations, learning theory, classroom management. Or we may pass teaching practice itself into a set of discrete techniques that can be taught individually. And she goes on, she she offers a proposal for conceptualising teaching as a practice that entails five persistent problems, each of which presents a difficult challenge to teachers and all of which compete for teachers' attention. Now, this is where expectations begin to blend with experience and expertise, because it's that acknowledgement of the fact there will be a range of problems and challenges that need dealing with on an almost second by second basis. And it's the more expert teacher, through experience of these of managing and identifying these situations, is able to more efficiently deal with them. Now, if the word efficiency began with an EX, I'd have used it as well today. Uh, she suggests that viewed in this way, the role of teacher education is not to offer solutions to the problems, but instead to help novices learn to analyse the problems and evaluate alternative courses of action for how well they address them. So she argues very early here for, for deliberate, purposeful practice. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, the problems and the areas themselves she identifies uh, are, are quite interesting in terms of these, I suppose, the different titles she gives them and the different areas of focus. So the first one she considers is the need to portray the curriculum. So the first persistent challenge for all teachers is to portray curriculum content in a way that makes it comprehensible to naive minds, and then to decide how that will be constructed from some kind of activity that takes place in a specific space. So that's then this sort of the curriculum area. The second one is enlisting student participation. Um, and again, we, we go to her wonderful phrase, education is mandatory, but learning is not. And all teachers, that persistent challenge all teachers face stems from that. You teachers face a captive audience with captive being the wrong, you know, an interesting word there. They are they have to be there. It doesn't mean that they have to learn so they can be both captive and what um, Kennedy calls resistant. Uh, the third challenge is that of exposing student thinking teachers can never be certain what their students understand don't understand or misunderstand so that we have to continually find ways to expose that thinking the fourth challenge is that of containing the student behavior so that teachers must um do so not only as a matter of public safety (laughs) but also to ensure students are not distracting each other distracting the teacher from the lesson and the final strand is that need to accommodate personal need Um, the fifth persistent challenge, and I'll quote direct, teachers face is finding a way to address the first four problems in a way that is consistent with their own personalities and personal needs. And again, thinking back to what I said last week in my focus on Nuttall's uh, Hidden Lives of Learners, pulling all those things in together is really important to create this what Kennedy calls an integrated portrait of what teachers do. And she, she summarises with this definition, which I'll conclude on this evening. Um, A complete definition of what teachers do then might look like this. They portray curriculum content in a way that renders it comprehensible to to naive minds. For students who are not necessarily interested in learning, and whose grasp of the content is not readily visible to the teacher, and who are restless and easily distracted in a way that satisfies the teacher's personal needs. And one thing that I do encourage my trainees to do is build professional identities so that they understand what their needs of a teacher actually are. OK. Gosh. Well, thank you again for, uh, for taking the time this evening to listen in. And I hope that there's been something of interest for you. And I do hope that if you're listening back to this, that you go and you dig and you delve into some of those papers and areas that I've cited over the course of the last 90 minutes or so. Um, thank you as well for liking the show and for offering your comment and uh, i do hope uh, to be joined by a couple of uh guests next week and in, in future shows um just you know very aware of the fact that listening to me perhaps for 90 minutes on my little soapbox isn't <laughs> your definition necessarily of everything that you want so i do hope that uh i'm opening a few avenues for you i'm going to close with a quotation um and i, I know i opened with me i'm going to close with brian eno uh, so a little bit of an ambient touch, Eno says that craft is what enables you to be successful when you're not inspired. The difficulty of always feeling that you ought to be doing something is that you tend to undervalue the times when you're apparently doing nothing, and those are very important times. Art feeds my soul, craft feeds my family. And uh, if there's anything to take from that, then the idea of craft of classroom management, the craft of teaching, the craft of pedagogy, the craft of assessment, um, craft and efficiency intertwined. Thank you very much indeed for this evening, and I look forward to seeing you next week.
0: You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org.